John 4, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this gospel this morning, we come to John chapter 4, verse 1, and my goal uh, this morning is to cover verses 1 through 15. That's a lot of verses, but next Sunday we'll be sweeping back through uh, some of these verses uh, once again and then picking up uh, from there. But the title of the message this morning is, Sir, Give Me This Water. Sir, Give Me uh, This Water. Though I know that I am going to disappoint uh, some of you in, in doing this, uh, this morning I want to begin my sermon by talking about Tom Brady. (laughs) Uh, Tom Brady undeniably has had an unparalleled uh, career in the NFL, uh, making it to 10 Super Bowls and winning seven of them. He has everything that most people would ever want, and yet he is still not satisfied. In the days uh, leading up to his appearance in his fourth Super Bowl, he was being interviewed on 60 Minutes and listen to what he said in that interview about his thirst for something greater than what he had thus far achieved. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my dream, my goal, my life is great. But me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. Tom Brady's confession hung in the air between him and the interviewer. He just admitted that he knows there's got to be something greater out there for him than these Super Bowl victories, there's got to be more to life than this. But what is that greater thing? The interviewer wanted to know, and he said to Tom Brady, what's the answer? Tom Brady said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. That was a number of years ago since that interview Tom Brady has gone on to win four more uh, Super Bowls, yet after his seventh Super Bowl victory, he said, you know which Super Bowl ring is my favorite one? My favorite ring is the next one. And that's what drives him. Well, this morning, we're going to meet a woman who did not have seven Super Bowl rings, but she did have five rings. Five wedding rings going on a sixth one. Like Tom Brady, she is clearly thirsting for something greater than what she has attained, although she doesn't know what it is that she is thirsting for. If someone asked her what's the answer, she would have said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Or maybe she would have said, it might be this sixth man that I am with right now. We'll see. But in John 4, this woman of Samaria finds the real answer. More precisely, the answer finds her. And once this answer finds her, a freight train could not have stopped her from telling everyone the news of what she had discovered. There's a few very critical moments in the conversation between Jesus and this woman of Samaria that we're going to see here in John chapter 4. The first of these moments, I think, is in verse 15, when the woman says to Jesus these words, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. And this morning, we're going to look at the events which lead to this moment where this woman makes this request of Jesus in verse 15. And the way we'll break down our study of this passage is we'll observe four actions of Jesus, four actions of Jesus that bring the Samaritan woman to a place where she asks him for the thirst-quenching water 
that he gives. Four actions of Jesus that bring this woman to a place where she is asking Jesus for the thirst-quenching water that he gives. And the first thing he does is he enters her world. He enters her world. Observe what happens beginning in verse 1. When, therefore, the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Keep in mind, Jesus is in Judea right now. Verse 2, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he, Jesus, left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Based on what John is saying here in these verses, Jesus did not want to create any unnecessary complications for John the Baptist's ministry or to give the enemies of Jesus and the enemies of John the Baptist reason to fabricate some sort of um, competition or division between them. So he separates himself and leaves Judea and heads north to Galilee. Observe what John says beginning in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria, which lay in between Judea and Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. The parcel of land that's being spoken of here was purchased by Jacob back in Genesis chapter 33, and it became the spot where Jacob settled with his family for a time after he had reconciled with his brother Esau. And we learn in Genesis chapter 48, verse 22, that Jacob willed this parcel of land to his son Joseph. Nothing is said in the Old Testament about Jacob digging a well on this land, but he most certainly did that. And we learn from our passage today that he did exactly that to provide water for his family and his cattle while he was living on this land. And observe what Jesus does in verse 6. The text says, Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. You'll notice back in verse 4, that the text tells us that he, speaking of Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. You might want to underline that word, had. In order to get from Judea to Galilee, Jesus could have skirted around the eastern side of Samaria along the Jordan River and just traveled north to the region of Galilee, as many other Jews would have done. And in going this longer route, Jesus would have avoided the Samaritans, but it would have turned a three-day journey into a six-day journey. Some of the stricter or more fearful Jews would have gone this longer route around Samaria because of their hatred of the Samaritans or their fear of the Samaritans. Their attitude would have been, I must go around Samaria. But Jesus' attitude is, I must go through Samaria. By using the language of necessity here, John is likely telling us that in the saving plan of God, it was necessary for Jesus to pass through Samaria to keep a divine appointment with a Samaritan woman whom we're going to meet this morning. Now, to appreciate what Jesus is doing here, it would probably be helpful to understand something of the history between the Jews and the Samaritans that made travel through the region of Samaria complicated for the Jews. And let me give you that history uh, in a nutshell. Uh, During the Assyrian conquest 
of the northern tribes of Israel in 720 BC, the Assyrians took many of the Jews uh, away from the land, taking them into captivity, but they left some of the Jews behind in this region. They also took some of their own people from various places and settled them in the area where the northern kingdom of Israel once existed. And over time, these foreigners ended up intermarrying with the Jews who were left behind, creating a mixed race called the Samaritans. And over time, a hybrid religion developed among the people, characterized by portions of the religion of Jehovah and a whole lot of idolatry. Eventually, the Samaritans got rid of some of those idolatries and they began to fashion themselves more as worshipers of Jehovah, but their worship of Jehovah was a diminished version of what it should have been. The Samaritans rejected all of the Old Testament except the first five books of the Old Testament. And in the process, they cut themselves off from the revelation of the prophets and the wisdom writers that came along after the fifth book of the Old Testament was written. And thus their religious life was left impoverished by the absence of these additional inspired writings that we have in our Bibles. When the Jews of the southern kingdom returned to the land in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra after their own Babylonian captivity, which was sometime later, the Samaritans actually came to them and offered to help them to rebuild, but the Jews refused their offer. And this angered the Samaritans who began opposing the Jews at every turn. Eventually, the Samaritans turned around and built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which the Jews ended up destroying in 128 BC, which only further inflamed the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. All in all, by the time we arrive here in John 4, most Jews hated the Samaritans, and most Samaritans despise the Jews, which helps explain why many Jews preferred to go around Samaria as they traveled north from Judea toward Galilee. Yet, we see in our passage that Jesus insisted on going through Samaria. And as he does so, we learn that he came to a city named Sychar, just outside of this city was a well. Jesus, we learn, was wearied from his journey, so he sat beside the well and he waited. There's actually an Eastern Orthodox church that is over Jacob's well today. Uh, the Greek word that is translated well here in verse six speaks literally of a running spring but we know from later in the story that the well was deep enough that a person needed a rope and a utensil of some sort to dip into this underground spring and draw out the water. In fact, back in 1935, I think it was, they measured the depth of this well and it was 135 feet. That's a deep, deep well. We will see in verse seven that a woman will be coming to this well on this particular day, a woman who is spiritually thirsty, but she doesn't know what it is that she is thirsty for. How will she ever come to recognize her thirst in her soul for what it is and begin to ask for the thing that her soul is truly thirsty for? What did Jesus do to bring her to this point? Well, for starters, he entered her world. He left heaven and came to her planet. He left Judea and came 
to her city. He went to her well in the heat of the day and sat there waiting for her. Verse 7 tells us what happens next, saying, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Take a moment to just visualize this scene as this woman walks toward the well on this particular day, oblivious to the fact that she is about to meet Jesus. She is about to meet the one that she has been thirsting for, for all of her life. There's something striking to me about how ordinary this scene is. It's just like the kind of ordinary moments that we see around us all the time. This woman coming to this well to draw water on this day is as ordinary as a woman going to Costco today to pick up some water bottles. Yet Jesus enters this woman's ordinary routine and he meets her there. And I think before we go further into this story, I think we can learn something from Christ's example. When reaching out to the lost or even looking to minister to the saved, don't sit around and wait for the obviously epic moments before you share Christ with others. The ordinary moments will do just fine. In fact, it is often the ordinary moments that are the most electric with possibilities and with opportunities to impart Christ to others. And so I would encourage you to seize the moment and invade other people's ordinary in order to show them Christ and bring them into your own ordinary as well. That neighbor who is walking around the block just like he or she does every day, step into their ordinary and have a conversation with them. That coworker who is sitting in the break room eating his lunch just like he does every other day, step into his ordinary and take a seat across the table from him. That child of yours that is going to bed at the end of the day, enter their room and chat with them and pray with them before they fall asleep. That child of yours who needs a ride to baseball practice again, cherish the task of taking them to practice and conversing with them on the way. Some of the most epic conversations that you will ever have with your children or with others will come in what seems at first to be ordinary moments. And many of them will come when you are wearied and tired, just as Jesus is here. So be on the lookout, be in tune with the Lord and what he is doing, be fully present and ready to make a difference for Christ inside the ordinary moments of life. This is what Christ is doing here as we see him taking his seat on the path of this woman's ordinary routine, seizing the opportunity to, as we're going to see, show her his glory. Now, before we move uh, further into this account, let's at least take a couple minutes to ask some questions about what we see this woman doing in verses 6 and 7. We should be asking, why is this woman coming to this particular well? Why is she coming alone? And why is she coming at noon during the heat of the day? Evidence indicates that there were sources of water in Sychar, but this woman didn't get her water from any of those places inside the city closer to where she lived. She prefers instead to walk half a mile outside the city to get her water from this particular well. And the question is, why? 
Also, John tells us it's about the sixth hour, which means the sixth hour after sunrise, which means noon. It was not unheard of for women to draw water at noon, but most women would perform this task in the morning when it was cool, or they would draw their water closer to sunset when it was cooler. Most women did not draw water in the heat of the day. So why would this woman come to this particular well at noon of all times to draw water? And why would she come by herself when most women perform this task together with other women? To answer these questions, we're going to learn in the coming verses that this woman has had five husbands and the one she is presently living with is not even her husband. The Samaritans embraced enough of God's revelation to know that there is much that is wrong with what's going on in this woman's life. So there's little doubt that her lifestyle created quite a stir in the community, rendering her a moral outcast. Putting all of this together, the commentator F.F. F. Bruce makes the following observation. He says, and I quote, curious is the fact that the woman should have come to this well at all, for there was plentiful water nearer her home. The woman had a bad reputation, and the explanation may be very simple. She chose the time and the place to avoid other women. And I would agree with this suggestion as many other commentators do. It's highly likely that this Samaritan woman's lifestyle has reduced her to having to come by herself to this particular well at this particular time of day in order to avoid the scornful stares and the moral judgments of other people. And it seems that she perfectly times her visit to this well on this particular day because no one is at the well except Jesus. Inside this woman's lonely and isolated world, Jesus sits ready to engage her in conversation. And this brings us to the second action of Jesus to bring this Samaritan woman to a place where she is asking him for the thirst-quenching water that only he can give. Number two, he speaks to her and he asks her for a drink. He speaks to her and asks her for a drink. Observe what happens beginning in verse seven. John says, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. In the first place, guys, this right here shows all of us what an unpredictable savior Jesus is. How contrary are his ways compared to what you and I would have imagined? Think about it, if, if you were Jesus, and you could craft the setting in which you would reveal yourself as the all-sufficient, thirst-quenching source of living water that this woman needs, would you have created a setting in which you are seated by a well, wearied from travel, and needing to ask this woman for her to give you a drink? I'm sure that none of us would have chosen to reveal ourselves to this woman in this way if we were the Christ. But aren't you glad we're not the Christ? This is exactly what Jesus does, though. He chooses to present himself to this woman in his humanity, in his weariness and thirst, admitting his need, and he chooses to put himself in a vulnerable position, asking her to give him some water to drink. 
There's a few other things to appreciate here in this moment. One of them has to do with barriers. Uh, in asking this woman for a drink and engaging in conversation with her, Jesus is crossing barriers. He's crossing four of them, actually. And let me identify these four barriers for you. The first barrier that he is crossing is the divine human barrier. No one deserves to just hear the voice of God and live to tell about it. Jesus is God, and yet he's going to speak to this woman, and she's going to live to tell about it. The second barrier Jesus is crossing is the moral barrier. Jesus is the perfectly holy one, and this woman, as we're going to see, is a sinner. What a chasm lay between Jesus and this woman, yet Jesus is willing to cross that chasm and speak to this woman who was living in sin. The third barrier is the gender barrier. Jewish rabbis in this day would not speak to a woman in public. They would not even greet a woman in public, even if that woman happened to be their wife or their daughter. For a rabbi to be seen speaking to a woman in public was the end of his reputation. And yet here is Jesus talking to this woman, something that even his disciples will be surprised to observe when they arrive in verse 27. The fourth barrier that Jesus is crossing is what we could call the ethnic barrier. Typically, Jews, as we have seen, had nothing to do with the Samaritans. In the ancient Jewish Mishnah, it is said, and I quote, the daughters of the Samaritans are deemed as unclean from their cradle, unquote. The ancient rabbi Eleazar said, and I quote, he that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one that eats the flesh of pigs. That's the ultimate insult. Yet Jesus is here talking to this woman of Samaria and he's wanting her to give him a drink from her utensil. And when you ponder these four barriers that Jesus is crossing, you appreciate what a shocking thing it was for Jesus to be speaking to this woman at all and why it surprises her that he would speak to her and ask her to give him a drink. In fact, notice how she responds in verse 9. Therefore, the Samaritans said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And then John adds, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And literally, the Greek could be translated for Jews do not use the same dishes with Samaritans, which explains why this woman is shocked that Jesus seems to have no problem drinking from whatever container that she provides. Another fascinating thing to ponder here is the fact that Jesus chooses to begin his engagement with this woman by asking for her to give him something. She is as lost of a sinner as a sinner ever was, but Jesus puts himself in a position of asking her for something and letting her bless him. He allows himself to suffer a need and he asks her for a favor, letting her know that she in this moment has the capacity to bless him and serve him. And let's learn something from Jesus here. When we are dealing with the lost, we should realize that our relationship with them doesn't have to only be about us blessing them, but also about us appreciating the blessing that they can be to us, even as non-believers. We should appreciate the fact that in the common grace of God, there are genuinely good ways in which they, non-believers, 
can bless us that we can praise and thank God for. Having this knowledge frees us up as Christians to humble ourselves, admit our needs even before non-believers, and receive kindness from them and offer to them a genuine thank you for their kindness and actually view their kindness as from the Lord. I hope that makes sense. I, I used to have a neighbor whom I had engaged with and witnessed to on a number of occasions. And I had breakfast with him uh, a couple times, hung out with him a few times at his mechanic shop, and uh, still occasionally interact uh, with him uh, via text. He has not put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he bears the imprint of the image of God in ways that I often found meaningful and would tell him so. He was a blessing to me on a handful of occasions, and whenever he blessed me, I was always careful to give thanks to God for showing me his kindness through this man as this man displayed God's image toward me on one occasion, I asked this man if I could just stop and pray and thank God for the blessing that he was to me. And thankfully, he allowed me to do so. Let's be reminded that non-Christians bear the image of God in meaningful ways, though diminished and marred because of the fall, but they do display the image of God in ways that can render them a blessing to you. Receive that blessing, celebrate that blessing, thank them for that blessing, and let them know that you thank God for them also, even while you are sharing Christ with them in the hopes that they might be saved eternally. Those non-believers in your life are more than just your project. They are image bearers of God who reflect his common grace in ways that you can benefit from and appreciate. That's Jesus' mindset here, I think. He opens himself up to being blessed by this woman. He's asking her for a drink, and no doubt this woman provided him a drink, and he thanked her for her kindness this woman expresses her shock that Jesus would even speak to her and want to drink from the same utensil that she might have drank from. But Jesus presses further. He doesn't stop here. There is yet a third action of Jesus to bring this Samaritan woman to a place where she asks him for the thirst-quenching water that only he can give. Number three, he reveals himself to her as the one with living water. He reveals himself to her as the one with living water. In response to this woman's shock and surprise that Jesus would ask her for a drink, verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus identifies two things that this woman does not know yet. And the first of these things is the gift of God that she does not know. And in using this expression, the gift of God, Jesus is referring to the free gift of salvation, of eternal life that God is right now in the process of giving out to lost sinners. And Jesus is saying to this woman, if you knew the heart of God for you in this moment, if you only knew the amazing gift that God wants to give to you through me, you wouldn't be acting so stunned that I am speaking to you right now. In verse 10, Jesus also says, if you knew who it is who speaks to you. This woman does not have a clue at this point who Jesus is. She doesn't know that she is standing just a few feet away from the Messiah who has come from heaven to earth. Jesus must have enjoyed this particular moment knowing that this woman is only a couple minutes away 
from exploding with joy over the realization of who he is. And notice the the verbs that Jesus uses here in verse 10 and the tense of them. Jesus is telling this woman that if she knew the gift of God and knew who Jesus is, then two things would have already in the past have happened. Number one, she would have already asked him for living water. And number two, Jesus would have already given that living water to her. Do you feel the eagerness of Jesus in his response to this woman? They are hardly 20 seconds into their conversation and Jesus is saying that if this woman really knew the gift of God and knew the identity of Jesus, she would have already asked him for living water and he would have already given that living water that she would have asked for. The whole transaction of him giving her living water would have happened that quickly. That's the heart of Jesus for those who come to him asking for salvation. What Jesus' language here indicates is that if you came to Jesus, even this morning, and you asked him for the living water that he gives, if you ask him for salvation, he will not respond by saying, give me a week to think about it he will respond immediately. He will respond swiftly. And he speaks to this woman in a way that makes this swiftness very clear. All she has to do is ask for this living water from him and he will immediately grant that to her. That's the heart of Jesus. In verse 10, Jesus is also directing this woman's focus on himself as the only source of this living water. He's saying, if you knew the gift of God and if you knew who I am, you would have asked me for living water to satisfy your soul's thirst. You would not be going to anyone else. You would be asking me alone. That's essentially what he's saying. And the truth for us all is this, if we really know the gift of God and we really know the truth about Jesus and the fullness of who he is, it would be Jesus that we would be running to to quench our soul's thirst, amen? And we would forever cease our running to other things and depending on other things and other people to quench the thirst of our soul. The opposite, unfortunately, is also true. The reason we run to other things to satisfy the thirst of our souls is because we don't really understand the greatness of the gift of God and we don't understand Jesus as we should. And we don't appreciate the truly satisfying deliciousness of the living water that he happily gives to those who ask. That's the expression he uses, living water. In the physical realm, the expression living water speaks of water that is moving. It's alive, it's moving like water from a spring rather than water that is still or static like the water that sits motionless in a cistern of some sort. It is flowing water that is best for cleansing and for nourishment. And this is the picture that Jesus uses to represent the water that he stands ready to give to this Samaritan woman, a flowing water that derives from the throne of God himself. As Leon Morris says, the life that Jesus gives is no tame and stagnant thing. It's a vibrant thing that never stops moving and never runs dry. And it is life-giving to the soul. Well, these are amazing words that Jesus speaks to this woman. And she hears these words and she sizes Jesus up. And at this point, frankly, she's unimpressed. For what Jesus is saying doesn't fit at all with what she's seeing with her eyes. Observe her response in verse 11. She said to him, sir, 
you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. This woman is sharp. She's perceptive. She knows this well is deep. She's been here before. And she sees that Jesus has absolutely nothing to draw water with, yet Jesus is talking like he's big stuff here. So she asks, are you greater than Jacob? who had to dig this well to get water for himself and his family? Her question is an excellent question, and she's about to discover that the answer is, yes, Jesus is way greater than Jacob. And this brings us to the fourth action of Jesus, the fourth action that he engages in to bring the Samaritan woman to a place where she asks him for the thirst-quenching water that only he can give. Number four, he teaches her about the thirst-quenching water he offers. He teaches her about the thirst-quenching water that he offers. Observe Jesus' answer beginning in verse 13. As he points to the water in the physical well, verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus first here speaks of the water in the physical well, pointing out its limitations. Everyone who drinks of this water in this well will thirst again. The statement holds true not only for Jacob's well, but also for everything and everyone else that you and I might ever look to to satisfy our thirst. But there's another kind of water that Jesus wants to speak about here, and he makes two promises about this special water that he gives. First of all, he promises that anyone who drinks of the water he gives them will never thirst again. In speaking this way, Jesus is not saying that, hey, if you drink of the water I give, you will never experience the sensation of spiritual thirst. But what he's saying is, if you drink of the water that I give, you will never have to go thirsty without a means of satisfying your thirst anytime you please through me. Secondly, Jesus offers an astounding promise in verse 14 saying, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Just as people would come to this well in Samaria and keep drawing from the well since the time of Jacob onward and yet it still has water to give so it is with the water that Jesus provides it's a supply of water that will keep on giving and will never run dry but even greater than that Jesus promises that this well of water will take up residence within you and be constantly springing up with all the thirst-quenching nourishment that your soul needs. It will spring up within you for all eternity and not only nourish you, but it will also nourish other people who are being blessed and refreshed by you. This kind of language points us to the Holy Spirit whom God gives to dwell inside of believers, the third member of the triune Godhead whom God gives to inhabit believers. And this language by Jesus would also be inclusive of the gospel of Christ and all the wisdom about Christ, even Christ himself that takes up residence within us and springs up unto eternal life. Well, now those are some amazing promises that Jesus speaks here and observe the woman's response in verse 15. And this brings us to the climax of this part of the story. The woman said to him, sir, 
give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Unfortunately, many commentators understand this woman's words here in a way that I think is unfair to her. Many interpreters think that this woman has mistakenly understood Jesus to be talking about providing merely physical water and that she's now just wanting this physical water so that she doesn't have to engage in this chore of coming to this physical well to draw water anymore. And I think to understand the woman in this way is to fail to give her the credit that I think she deserves here. Remember, guys, that Jesus has just spoken to her about a water, and he's spoken about it in a way that doesn't describe physical water. He has just spoken to her about a living water that he gives that actually becomes inside of a person a wellspring of water that springs up to eternal life. I think this woman is sharp enough to know that Jesus is not talking about physical water here. And let's pay close attention to her response in verse 15, where she says to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Clearly, she's admitting her thirst. She is confessing that she doesn't want to be thirsty anymore. She's confessing that to Jesus. And notice why she wants Jesus to give her this water. She says, so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Underline those words, all the way here. Remember that there were sources of water closer to where this woman lived, but she didn't go to those sources of water in the city, but she came all the way out here to this particular well. And why is that? Well, as we have seen, because she was a moral outcast. This is why she came all the way to this particular well at this particular time of day when she was the least likely to run into anybody else. Therefore, it is very likely that this woman is essentially saying to Jesus, sir, give me this water that you speak about so that my thirsty soul will be satisfied. And I will then stop being driven by my thirst to make lifestyle choices which render me a moral outcast and reduce me to having to come all the way here to this particular well in the heat of the day just to get my water. Does that make sense? Clearly, this is a powerful moment that Jesus has ushered this woman into wherein she is asking Jesus to give her this living water so that she will stop trying to quench her thirst through sinful choices and end up making her life so much harder and more isolated and more lonely than it had to be. With this understanding of this woman's meaning in mind, we realize that a massive amount of ground has been covered in the space of a few minutes of conversation between Jesus and this woman. Jesus can do that kind of thing, you know. The conversation between Jesus and this woman began with Jesus saying to her, give me a drink. And this section of the story ends with this woman asking him for the water that he has told her that he can provide her. Clearly, Jesus has ushered this woman to a point where she is becoming aware of her thirst, her spiritual thirst, and she's admitting her spiritual thirst and is now looking to him and asking him to give her the water that only he can give. The commentator William Barclay suggests that at the heart of this story is 
the fundamental truth that in the human heart there is a thirst for something that only Jesus Christ can satisfy. There's so much this woman does not even know at this point of the story, but she knows enough to look at Jesus and say, sir, give me this water. Give me this living water so that I won't be thirsty anymore. Have you asked Jesus for the water of life that only he can give? If you have, do you daily keep coming to him and drinking of this living water that he provides and abundant for you? Do you drink lavishly of this living water every day? Or are you drinking from other things? Do you appreciate the fact that Jesus is the one who can truly satisfy your soul's thirst and that until you get your satisfaction from him, you will perpetually be looking to other people and other things to satisfy your soul and you will always be left dissatisfied. If you have been running to other things to satisfy the thirst of your soul, I urge you this morning to think about what we've learned just in the part of the text that we've covered this morning and repent and run to Jesus and quench your thirst in him. Some of you, I have no doubt, have been engaging in sins that ultimately leave you more lonely and isolated than you need to be. Jesus meets you on that lonely path this morning and he says to you, my name is Jesus. I'm the one that you've really been thirsty for all of your life. Come to me and drink to your heart's content. Ask me for this water and I will give it to you swiftly and abundantly. I started this message with Tom Brady. Let me end with Dan Nolte, who was a major league baseball pitcher who pitched for the New York Yankees in 1999. They won the World Series that year and after celebrating their World Series victory all night with his teammates, Dan Nolte at the top of the world still felt empty inside. In desperation, he asked his limo driver this question, is there more to life than this? Describing how he felt in that moment, Dan Nolte later said, we just won the World Series and the streets aren't paved with gold and I'm not riding on clouds, but I feel just as miserable now as I did before. He was so low in that moment that he asked the limo driver to stop the car so that he could get out and jump off the George Washington Bridge and in his life. The day after his team won the World Series. Thankfully, it was rush hour and the limo driver ignored his request. I was crashing and burning, Nolte says. If the World Series and all the money and playing for the Yankees isn't gonna fix my life, then nothing is gonna fix my life. That's what he was thinking in that moment. Baseball, he says, was my God. It drove every decision I made. You do anything at all costs to experience your dream, he says. And for him, part of that cost entailed him using steroids and amphetamines to enhance his performance. What's interesting is that two years prior to this low moment that I've just described, Dan Nolte attended Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, 
he heard Greg Laurie preach the gospel and he accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. Even throughout that 1999 season, he had attended many daily devotions with some of his Christian teammates on the Yankees. And during those meetings, he learned more about Jesus and how to walk with him. And yet, idolatries remained in his life until his ride in the limo the morning after the World Series. After that low point of his life, he returned to Christ with such a profound turning that by the time his plane landed in California for the off-season, he was a different man. When the plane wheels hit the ground, he says, I was on fire for the Lord. It's like the Lord had flipped a switch. And while in California in the months that followed, Dan Nalty gathered with saints daily and he would attend services on Sundays at a handful of churches because he couldn't get enough of Christ and his word. In the years that followed, he got a degree from Denver Seminary and Oxford University and he's now pastoring Faith Presbyterian Church in Jenison, Michigan telling others about Jesus just like the Samaritan woman is going to be doing in the coming verses of John 4. After three Super Bowls, Tom Brady was still thinking there's got to be something better out there than what I have attained. And he doesn't know what that better thing is, but Dan Nolte does. And so will this Samaritan woman in the coming verses. And so will you, if you just do these few things. Recognize who Jesus is. Recognize the gift of God that God wants to give to you through him that will satisfy the thirst of your soul. And number three, know Jesus' eagerness to give you this gift even this morning if you will simply recognize your thirst, admit your thirst to him, and ask him to give you the water of life that only he can give. Let's pray together and ask God to help all of us to do this very thing. Lord, I confess to you that even as a believer, I so often fail to drink sumptuously of the water that you provide. And I often find myself drinking from other things, sinful things, or sometimes even good things that are, that are totally fine. And yet I'm putting on those good things a burden to fulfill me in a way that only you can. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would help me and help all of us in this room in the days of this coming week to, to feast sumptuously on the water of life that you provide. And that we would experience that spring just springing forth from within us and spilling out of us onto others, not only nourishing our souls, but also nourishing the souls of others. And I pray, Lord, if there's any here this morning that have never come to you, Lord Jesus, and admitted their soul's thirst to you, life that only you can give, I pray that that they would ask this of you. And may they feel the Lord. And we and save their souls. And we ask 
these things, Lord Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,